All righty, good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning, and it's a real privilege to be sharing across our congregations via the stream this morning. Matthew 18, 21 is where we're going to be. We're going to be continuing in our multi-year study, uh, verse by verse, through the gospel of Matthew. If I can be honest, I was genuinely torn this week about the wisdom and even the potential efficacy of pressing ahead in regular teaching through the gospel this week in the midst of another week in our nation of violence, pain, and confusion. And then I was reminded of a pastoral quote um, by Eugene Peterson. Peterson spoke of the pastoral imagination, what it is that the pastor does in and amongst a group of people. And Peterson said this, he said, the pastor's essential responsibility is to stand amidst our confused, restless world and to repeatedly speak one word, God. And so that's what I do this morning in the midst of confusion um, and restlessness in this world. I simply wanna open the scriptures and direct our attentions to God, to his nature, (laughs) to his work, to his grace, and to his mercy towards us. And as I do that, I believe the Holy Spirit will once again encourage us and empower us to follow Jesus more faithfully. Have you ever felt like following Jesus is a difficult thing to do? And I don't mean being a Christian in its cultural and religious trappings. I mean, actually following in the footsteps of Jesus, actually obeying his teachings. Have you ever felt like that is a difficult thing to do? If not, I'm not sure you've been reading his teachings all that plainly, to be honest. If I am honest, I get nervous when I read the gospels. My my daily Bible reading takes me all over the scriptures every day and I get nervous when I crack the spine in one of the gospels and I come across teachings direct from the mouth of Jesus about what it means to follow him and what sort of lives that citizens of his kingdom ought to have. So often for me, there is a significant gap between the life he commands and the life I know I have compromised towards. And I think, if we're honest, that is true for many of us. There's a tension, a gap between this kingdom life that Jesus calls us to and the actual lives that we live, even when we live them in his name. And so what do we do with that tension? We need to close those gaps some way. Well, what I have done and what I see happening in culture is that we water Jesus down and we distort the kind of life he commands into something altogether more palatable, something altogether more comfortable, even if it may be less Christ-like. We make following Jesus about our one-off adherence to a statement of faith, which is essential, but then we make that the totality, and we turn the Christian ethic into something that resembles, if we're honest, southern suburbia more than it does the call to Christ's kingdom. I get it. I do it too. We encounter his difficult teachings and we dismantle them because we don't want to obey them, right? And so we explain them away through ethics. Some of us use the whataboutisms of our own unique circumstances that surely exclude us from compliance, right? When we bring the commands of Jesus, I know pastorally many of us go like, well, that can't apply to me. Do you know how complicated my situation is? And I always want to say as a pastor, I don't because I want to keep my job. I always want to say like, oh, I'm sure Jesus didn't have that in mind uh, when he spoke to, when he spoke this command, you know, the complexity of your life 2,000 years later on. But I get it. I, I do that all the time as well. 
Some of us make pretenses of interpretation that make the instructions more difficult to understand than they appear. (laughs) The text today, friends, I'm going to tell you, like so many teachings of Jesus is not at all difficult to understand. It's plain in its reading. I could read the text today, close in prayer, and I think the Spirit would still get the lesson to us. Some of you go, you ought to consider that. I really ought to. Um, It would make our services uh, shorter, um, but would diminish uh, my need for a salary. And so uh, we're going to keep pressing on. I, I want the Spirit to explain the text to us. But the text today is not difficult to understand. I will warn you, though, it feels almost impossible to obey. It must be possible with the Spirit's help, but it's going to feel impossible. Uh, We also explain away the the, the commands of Christ through comfortable compromises of kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven where the comfort that upward mobility in this world brings, and it can bring much, I'm subject to it too, but that wins out against the clear discomfort (laughs) that a life of kingdom obedience might look like. Friends, I say this not to shame us. I say this to prepare us this morning. If your heart is anything like mine, you will be tempted to dismiss or to explain away the teachings of Jesus today or to try accommodate them into an already established pattern of compromised Christian culture, all the while missing what Jesus has for us. And listen, what he has for us is good. We mustn't forget that. When the words of Jesus are difficult, it is the character of Jesus that ought to drive our trust. And he said even that his teachings, his yoke, the mantle of interpretation of the law, the the fulfillment of the law that he would bring to us, that yoke is easy. And that burden is light compared to the other things that you want to obey in the world. What that means uh, with the text today is that what he offers you today is easier and lighter and better than the alternative. It just doesn't appear that way on first reading. So please, friends, please, please, please. I know as I start to read this text, some of you are going to dismiss him. Don't dismiss him quickly. Okay, now you are incredibly nervous, and you are scurrying through your Bibles trying to remember where we left off in Matthew last week, wondering what ethical concern may be raised by the text today, wondering what great moral topic we're going to discuss. You're like, oh, please don't let it be money. Don't let it be money. I think it's probably money. It's not money. Let me just tell you what it is. It is the great kingdom ethical concern of forgiveness, forgiveness of those who have sinned against us. You can feel the room go like, oh. J.C. Ryle said, there are few duties so strongly commanded in the New Testament scriptures as this duty is, the duty of forgiveness, and few whose neglect so clearly shuts a man out of the life of the kingdom of God. See, friends, forgiveness is actually one of the primary themes of Jesus' teachings. It's one of those that comes up again and again. It's one of the primary themes of his lived experience, his life. And yet we have lots of people in churches today who are deeply bitter, unforgiving, and unmerciful towards those who have sinned against them. And we seldom challenge anybody on it. We allow it to be a a, a sin that runs rampant in our congregations and no one gets called to repent on that. Why? Well, it's so prevalent, right? We would be very busy if we called people on unforgiveness because it's everywhere. And secondly, let's be honest, it's so hard to live out. It's prevalent because sin is prevalent. 
and we've all been sinned against. Every person in this room has been sinned against, probably even this morning, right? In our West congregation, you had to use uh, Loop 360 to get here. It means I'm guaranteed you've been sinned against um, in the traffic this morning. But some of us have been sinned against horrifically. I know. I know some of your stories, not all of them, but some. And it's so hard, in part, I want to tell you, because we misunderstand what it is, which we'll attempt to remedy this morning, but also because it feels like the opposite of what we think will bring us a sense of control, and the opposite of what we think will bring us joy and freedom and a life of abundance, a life to the fullest that Jesus promised. We think bitterness and anger and revenge will bring us that. When Jesus says, no, no, release and restoration and forgiveness and mercy is actually what gets you there. And so some of you are tense already. I know the face of the one who sinned against you or is sinning against you is currently in your mind. I know. I appreciate and identify with what Namibian scholar Victor Kuligan said. He said simply, Christ says we must forgive. I admit at times, I find that command impossible to obey, at which point I'm left with two options. Ignore it or submit myself to it and seek the Spirit's miraculous power to overcome my bitterness and anger. What will we do this morning with the teachings of Jesus? Ignore them or will we say, I don't know if I can. I need the Holy Spirit to help me. Now, that's my prayer that the Spirit would move mightily among us today and every other day and make us a community of forgiveness and mercy. With that said, let's seek the Spirit's help together uh, this morning as we turn to Matthew 18, 21. Here, here's what it says. Then Peter, always the first to approach. I love it. Always the spokesperson of the group, always willing to put himself out there, um, even when he sometimes says foolish things. And I don't believe he does here in this text, but always so willing. Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Now, friends, this question might seem strange, but it's good for us to remember the context that leads to Peter's question in the first place. The passages that immediately precede this question deal with a couple of things. They deal with the parable of the lost sheep which speaks of the, the kingdom posture of spiritual pursuit of the one who wanders away, right? That's, a, that's the posture of our Lord towards us, and so that's the posture of his followers. If one wanders away, no, we go and get them. And then last week's text on how that is played out in community. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his sin, right? And if he doesn't listen, then go take two or three eyewitnesses. And if he still doesn't listen, then go tell it to the church. What's the, what's the trajectory of this? The trajectory of this is, is pursuit so that mercy might be displayed. Because you see, the, the kingdom, the Christian community, according to Jesus, it's a community of mercy. And it's a community of holiness. So we don't overlook sin. But when we encounter it, we want to bring it to light, and then we want to deal with it mercifully. Where there is sin against each other, there isn't automatically distancing and isolation and separation in the Christian community. There is gracious pursuit and the pleading for a return, a repentance, a homecoming back into the community of faith. Now, this posture, this trajectory that Jesus was teaching them was blowing the minds of the disciples. They were like, wait, this is like nothing we've ever heard. 
And so Peter's question is an attempt to deal with some of the whataboutisms, and it's a question to put some kingdom guardrails on the discussion before it runs into craziness. And so Peter's going, wait, Jesus, hang on a second. Let's, let's establish some guardrails here, because I don't know if you've noticed, people are sinny, right? Everywhere you look, they're sinning against each other all the time. And so there's got to be some kind of upper limit to how many times we just do this again and again and again. And Peter's actually acting Christianly. He's actually showing some maturity in Christ here because the rabbinic teachings of the day had explicit commands around forgiveness and the extent to which you would have to go. You know what they said? Most uh, rabbinic traditions, the the most progressive, the ones that pushed you the furthest, uh, the the ones that provided yokes in the language of Jesus, they said that for a faithful Jew, forgiveness was required three times for the same offender. Three. Once, you apologize, I forgive you. Twice, you apologize, I forgive you. Three times, you apologize, I forgive you. Fourth time, no, sir. Nope, we done. I'm not bound to forgive you, and so I won't. It's the whole fool me once, you know, and all of that, if we want to hearken back to President Bush's uh, uh, faux pas off of that particular idiomatic expression, right? Oh, you fool me once, uh, that's, that's shame on you. You fool me twice, well, that's shame on me, right? The, the, the Jewish tradition went a bit further in grace, and they said, no, no, you get three. You get three, right? I think it's how baseball was born, um, out of that tradition. You get three. Fourth one, uh, it's done. I get it. It's painful and infuriating to be sinned against by the same person over and over again. And so three seems to me perfectly reasonable. I go like, I could work with that tradition. I believe in grace. I could do it three times. But if you think it through, (laughs) this gets us in real danger. Because I don't know about you, okay? I don't know about your life. Maybe you're way more sanctified than me. In fact, I probably predict that. But if it was three and done, I would have no old friends. All of my friends would be new friends. Because it doesn't take long to get to the three, right? And then they're like, we don't have to forgive you anymore because you keep doing the same nonsense. I would have... No relationship with my family. My family would have no relationship with each other. If it was three and done in the Leicester house, that would last my kids the first 37 minutes of the day before they no longer had to speak to each other, right? It's always, I'm sorry, I forgive you. I'm sorry, I forgive you. I'm sorry, I forgive you all the time because there's continual sin in their hearts. And so Peter is getting it, he's feeling it, he's going, oh, okay, I see this. His proposal actually shows that he is understanding that the kingdom of Christ is way more gracious and merciful than anything he had ever offered. And so he comes seven. People would have gasped. Peter's being the class nerd, right? You know this happens. He's sitting in class, someone comes up with the the -the over-the-top answer from the back, and you're like, oh, great. Now the rest of us look like jerks, right? You're the real jerk, but I have to judge you secretly in my heart. I can't let that out because I've already been forgiven three times for judgment. And so um, uh, fourth uh, would be problematic. Peter's going to the nth degree. Why? The the Hebrew number of seven was was the number for perfection. He's saying, Lord, as many as seven times? He's expecting a pat on the head from Jesus, but I'm imagining the disciples are predicting that Jesus will say, no, Peter, no, Peter, that's insane. In the kingdom, it's five, right? We split the difference, okay? They say three, you say seven, let's go five because the kingdom's full of grace. So you get five turns in the kingdom. But look at what Jesus says, verse 22. Now just see that context, right? 
Now think of how ridiculous this would have sounded. I tell you, not as many as seven, the disciples are like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> Woo, praise, the, praise the Lord, I can stay in this crew. But 70 times seven. Now, this would have silenced everybody. This is a crazy number. Now, there is some dispute, to be fair, among scholars about whether Jesus said 70 times seven or whether he said 77. Either way, he's actually not giving us a number. He's being idiomatic and not trying to give us that new top line. He's not saying, okay, it's 490. You're like, okay, I just need a longer journal, right? I just got to keep it all going because now 491 and you're done. That's not what he's saying. The number he uses is suggesting a number of maximum perfection. I see your perfection, Peter, and I perfect it again. He's saying, forgive with your whole life. When? Always. When? Always. This is not a call to a mechanism or structure or a grid of forgiveness. This is a call to a life, a life of mercy, a life that maintains an ongoing posture of forgiveness. Elizabeth Milford sees the hope in the midst of the struggle of this, because if you're like me, you feel a bit defeated by that, right? She says, there is hope in this initial response from Jesus. He indicates that forgiveness is not so much about a checklist or a sticker chart or final exam, but instead is about ongoing discipleship. Put another way, forgiveness must become a way of life. You see, friends, following Jesus, let me say this as simply as I can. Following Jesus means following him in a life of mercy and ongoing forgiveness even when we don't want to. That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. Following him means following him in a life of mercy and ongoing forgiveness. Now listen, I can feel the grit. I can feel the resistance. I can feel the pushback. I have it in myself. Scott Sauls, just a, a great friend and a wonderful writer, recognizes the difficulty of all of this that I know many of you are feeling. He says, listen to this, according to Jesus, If we want to be his disciples, then we must not place any limits on the number of times we're willing to forgive those who offend, insult, injure, persecute, and betray us. This includes smaller, innocuous offenses. It also includes greater offenses, the ones that feel like the ripping of our flesh and the crushing of our spirits. Forgiving others as God in Christ has forgiven you is gutsy, and gut-wrenching, it's courageous and terrifying, it's redemptive and messy, it's breathtaking and exhausting and heavenly and hellish in what it is going to require of us. The practice of forgiveness is no easy endeavor. Amen, Scott Sauls. Now, before we get into a motivation for a life like this, which Jesus provides in a painful and powerful parable that we'll, we'll spend the, the back end of our time with today, let's just stop and ask some questions, right? Because I know you've got them in your mind, so we might as well address them. Uh, what is forgiveness? And what is it not? And what are our alternatives, right? Some of you are considering alternatives. If following Jesus means a life of forgiveness, what are the options of a cause? <laughs> is there a plan B um, where I get to follow Jesus, um, enjoy his benefits, and not do that, because I, I don't want to do that. 
Well, well, let's just first ask what forgiveness is not. In a broader biblical theological framing of it, I could have done many points this morning, but I've got 35 minutes, right? And so I'm just gonna provide us four things that forgiveness is not. These are things that, that I felt commonly coming up pastorally when people have been sinned against particularly grievously and are struggling to forgive. These are the, hey, forgiveness is not disclaimers uh, that, that I like to share with people that I think the biblical witness bears out to. Right? Because this is not the only text on forgiveness. There are many. It's explained again and again in the scriptures. Firstly, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting an offense, and it is not pretending it never occurred. This is not us sweeping sin under the rug or looking the other way. The Bible calls sin, sin. Right? There's, the whole book is about how we fail and sin against each other and what we owe as a result. The Bible continually calls sinners to account. Now, it is true that the scriptures tell us it is godly and God-honoring to overlook an offense. And the scriptures also tell us that God in his grace remembers our sins no more. What that means is he doesn't choose to call them to mind anymore. God isn't forgetful. It means he stops bringing them to his attention. But the biblical witness is that sin has consequences and must be recognized as sin and called out as such. Even the text we studied last week said that when someone sins against us, what do you do? You confront them. You don't just sweep it under the rug. You don't forget about it. You don't pretend it never happened. You go to your brother or sister and you confront them. Why? Sin wounds. And so people need to be called uh, called out for it. We don't sweep sin under the rug. We deal with it in the light. That is Christianity, right? Secondly, forgiveness is not, listen, reconciliation between the wounder and the wounded. Forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation between the wounder and the wounded. Now listen, hear me. Reconciliation is a powerful biblical concept. And there can be no reconciliation without forgiveness. But they are not the same thing. You see, in my experiences of observed broken relationships and even broken systems and structures, I've discovered that it takes one to repent, right? One person repents, they own their sin. And it only takes one to forgive. Oh, I forgive you, right? But it takes two to reconcile. (laughs) And you don't always have two willing parties. It's not always possible. You can forgive someone and experience a very different relationship with them going forward because of what they have done. You may need to. Archbishop Emeritus Desmond Tutu, who is something of an expert on the lived experience of forgiveness and reconciliation, he said something profound about the shape of relationships post-forgiveness. I love this as as a lens, as a grid. He said, once you have been able to forgive, the final step is to either renew or release the relationship you have with the one who has harmed you. You see that? Renew or release, you've got, you've got options at that stage. Indeed, if you never speak to the person again, even if you never see them again, even if they are dead, they live on in ways that affect your life profoundly. The archbishop is correct. People will continue to affect us. But forgiveness doesn't mean that the relationship will always take the same shape afterwards, or even that it should. Forgiveness, dear friends, my hope would be in most cases, brings about the possibility of the renewal of a relationship. It brings two people closer together again. But it may also simply facilitate the release of that relationship 
from the clutches of bitterness that holds people together though they may be apart. (laughs) Have you ever noticed this? People who aren't speaking to each other are still bound to each other. (laughs) They're just not bound in, in, in the conditions of mercy and grace. They're bound by bitterness and by wound and by anger. Thirdly, this is key, right? We need to say this because the church hasn't always been clear or helpful on this. Forgiveness is not necessarily the removal of barriers to ongoing injury. Forgiveness is not the removal of barriers to ongoing injury. Sometimes it's wise and godly and just and right to now have barriers around relationships when the sin has been of a particular nature that it leaves an ongoing threat to the safety of people. Sometimes it's wise and even godly uh, that barriers of the state or barriers even of common wisdom are placed on relationships even after forgiveness is granted. In cases of abuse, we want people placed in positions of safety, ongoing safety, and Christ would call them. Here's Here's the tough call. Christ would call them to forgive their abusers. As truly painful as that is, But the wisdom of the scripture would call perhaps for for, for us no longer granting their abuser access to continue to abuse them. That's wisdom. Rachel Denholander displayed this so powerfully in her testimony at the trial of Larry Nassar, a man who had abused her and many other young women. Rachel's testimony ensured that Larry Nassar had to face justice and was removed any access he would ever have to young gymnasts ever again. Rachel's a Christian woman who is on a Christian pursuit of justice and mercy. And so she wanted to make sure that Larry Nassar had barriers to relationship with young gymnasts that was appropriate and right, and the prison system was the place that he needed to be. But she forgave him in her testimony at his sentencing. It's incredibly powerful. I encourage you to look it up. And she walked this tension so well. Here's what she said. Look at at the heart Christian posture here. She calls his sin, she exposes it to the light, she, rem- she puts a barrier so that he can't access more young women, and then she forgives him. She says, you have damaged hundreds. And the Bible carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and its eternal terror is poured out on men like you. It's sin. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. Justice and mercy. Forgiveness. Fourthly, that links to forgiveness is not an ignoring of justice. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we don't subject people to worldly systems and consequences. It also means that we, it also doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we don't oppose systems of injustice that we see injuring people. We must and we should, but from a posture of mercy. Okay, that's what it's not. What is it then? Well, the clearest way to explain it in biblical terms, and the text is gonna do that today, is that it's a cancellation of relational debt. Debt is the language used repeatedly in scripture for forgiveness. It's the language that Jesus uses in this parable, in this this chapter. To forgive is to say that I won't continually punish you with the personal debt that you own. There are earthly consequences, and this doesn't diminish that, but forgiveness stops demanding that others pay in order to appease my sense of pain 
and wound. The pain may remain, but we stop charging it actively to somebody else's account. And so we release people into their indebtedness to God and the indebtedness that we too have, though in a different way. Secondly, forgiveness is not just a cancellation of relational debt. It's also a refusal to rest in the false comfort of bitterness. You see, the the opposite of forgiveness isn't freedom. The opposite of forgiveness is bitterness. And it's a false comfort that ultimately amplifies the effect of sin. It doesn't lessen the sin against us. Rather, it binds us indefinitely to the sinner. Thirdly, forgiveness is, and here's where it gets hard. You ready? Everyone take a deep breath. Okay, here we go. Holy Spirit, help us. Forgiveness is a desire for the flourishing of the one who has sinned against us. Within the constructs of the barriers that may be necessary, forgiveness starts to actually want what's best for the person who sinned against us. I love again how Scott Sauls expressed this when he said, as we extend the forgiveness that Christ has secured for us, we open our hearts to the possibility, even to the hope that the offending party would someday soften and experience sorrow for the hurt that they have caused. We also hold out hope that the perpetrator would confess his wrongdoing and seek forgiveness from God and from us. Our forgiveness includes the ongoing choice of exchanging our daydreams. Oh, who has these daydreams? Of our enemy's demise for new daydreams, one in which he is humbled into repentance. Do you have those daydreams? Oh, when you get to finally lay their sins bare. Oh, You get to reveal who they are. You get to show how wicked they are. You get to pay them back. Forgiveness exchanges those daydreams for like, oh, imagine what it would be like if they softened. Imagine what it would be like if they turned. Imagine the homecoming they would receive from the king, even, even in the extreme instance that they no longer get access to me. Oh, imagine. That's forgiveness. Okay, that's a lot. (laughs) And I'm well aware we haven't even dealt with the majority of the text yet. Let's do that. Taking what we now know about how Jesus calls us into a life of forgiveness and asking what would possibly fuel and empower that sort of life. There's only one point really to this parable, and so I'm going to go quickly through it. We don't need to get distracted by the various details. There's one main teaching point here, and it's, and it's obvious. Jesus jumps into this parable because he's, his disciples are a bit like you all. They're flabbergasted, right? They're going like, how? How do you do this? And so he tells this story. For this reason, Jesus says, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him and forgave him the loan. Just some context here. Jesus is being hyperbolic here to make a point. There would have been giggles in the crowd, okay? Some of Jesus' parables are markedly funny. Uh, When he cites this example of what the guy owes, people would have laughed. 10,000 talents. If you can draw a modern day equivalent, it's very hard to do it, but if you could draw a modern day equivalent, it's somewhere in the region of $6 billion. It's something like an average three bedroom home in Austin, right? The, The value 
isn't really the point. It's like Zillow values. They're just funny money. It's like, whatever. The value isn't the point. Both 10,000 and talent were the largest units of measurement in the Roman world. And so Jesus uh, was saying that this man owed the largest amount that their world was able to measure and count. Whatever the highest number is that you can count to, that's what he owed. It's like saying, pick the largest number that can be named. And this week, I learned what that is. It's called Googleplexian, right? That's the largest number that can be named, apparently. It's a debt impossible to imagine or to quantify. That's what he owes. And, and, And so he can't pay it back. And so the punishment of putting him and his family into indebted servitude was a common scenario for those in steep debt. But this man would never be able to repay. And this shows his self-righteousness. This shows we're exactly like him. Uh, He comes and says, no, no, I will repay you. It's laughable. It's pitiable. It's like us before God saying, okay, I'll be good from now on. And then we square, right? Then we're good. He's like, no, (laughs) it's Google Plexian, your sins. Uh, It's impossible for you to pay back. This is the essence of self-righteousness. We don't realize our station. We don't know how much we owe. But what motivates the master? What motivates him? A good financial deal? A payoff scheme? No, compassion. This is the mercy of God. He has compassion on those who owe him and doesn't just cancel our great debt. He pays it himself. Genuine forgiveness is driven by compassion for sinners who are languishing in the bondage of their own sin. There comes the sting in the parable's tale. I'm nearly done, right? Verse 28, that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants. Imagine being that, having that debt canceled, right? That servant then went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me, I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. Now, now friends, this man is owed a debt. He is owed a debt. It's a real one. This day's worth of wages at a skilled day laborer's rate. It's three months' salary, right? It's not nothing. It's significant. But what is it compared to what he owed? And look at his posture. Angry, bitter, demanding, violent in his desire for recompense. And when he is asked for just a sliver of the compassion and mercy that he has been shown, what does he do? He denies it. He refuses it. The debt he has incurred has been forgiven, but he demands that the debt that he is owed must be paid and then some. You see this thing in the tale? You see the particular cruelty of this? Jesus goes on, verse 31. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. And after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. What's that? That's lifelong, eternal separation. He can never pay it back. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from their heart. Not hard to understand. Almost impossible to obey. Here's the point. It's the mercy, compassion, and forgiveness of God that makes life in the kingdom possible in the first place. Romans 6 says we owe, we owe a debt. 
the wages of sin is death. That's what we owe. We owe our whole lives. But Christ comes and pays that debt with what? His whole life. He meets the value. On the cross, he manages to deal with the collision of the fact that our debt is great and that his mercy is greater still. That we owe and that we are loved. On the cross, that's what Jesus says to you. Oh, you owe a great deal. You have no idea how much you owe. And you are loved beyond what you could possibly imagine. As a result, living life in the kingdom that we have access to by this great mercy ought to be shaped by mercy. Look at how Paul summarizes it in Ephesians 4.32, stating it simply. Look at the simplicity of these words. Again, not hard to understand. There's nothing hidden in the Greek, I promise you. It's simple and impossible without the Spirit's help. What does Paul say? Forgiving one another. Look at the next two words. Just as, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Remember, friends, this isn't a call to some kind of tick box. Rather, a call to a life where we fail today and we try again tomorrow. And then we try again the next day and then we try again the next day. This is a posture of mercy and forgiveness that being a Christian demands. Like the woman who washed Christ's feet in Luke 7. Jesus says she does it because she loves much. Why? She knows she's been forgiven much. Her knowledge of the the greatness of the mercy that she has in Christ places her in the posture of her life thrown at Jesus' feet, willing to do whatever he commands. This is the posture of a Christ follower. I have received so much forgiveness. One day when I'm dead, some of you will stumble upon some of my journals and go like, this dude sinned like crazy. I won't be able to deny it anymore, pretend or dress it up in a blazer. Yeah. And what have I received from Christ? Mercy. Can you imagine if there was a number where God's forgiveness ran out for me? I would have passed it long ago. And if I hadn't, I'd be terrified of the day that's certainly coming when I would surely pass it. The knowledge that that his mercy for me is ongoing and unlimited. That knowledge bends my knees, it humbles my posture, it turns me towards those who have sinned against me. And there are some saying, who can I forgive today? (laughs) Who can I release from my debt today? It's not a one and done. It's an ongoing journey. I love again how Elizabeth Milford described it. She said, forgiveness calls attention to our humanness at its most human. Oh, friends, I know it's hard. It reduces us to our most base of instincts and challenges us with the hard work of responding in the way of Christ instead. It's the choice, right? Will I follow my way or the way of Christ? One opportunity at a time, then seven, then 70 times seven. May we, little by little, move more into the ways of God's mercy. Okay, but how? Maybe today you feel too weak. The pain is too great. I get it. I I promise you I'm not diminishing your circumstances. I promise you. The sin against you may feel too weighty and too repetitive and too destructive. I understand. But as I close, look at how the disciples pressed back against this in Luke 17. Not with resistance, but with a plea for help. (laughs) 
Look at this. Jesus tells them, listen, Luke 17, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. What do the apostles say? Okay, sounds good. Seven in a day. Got it. No. What do they say? Increase our faith. Oh God, that's too hard. Help us, Holy Spirit. And this is where this text goes. You've heard this text used and abused. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the Lord said, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. What do we need faith the size of a mustard seed to accomplish great things for? Forgiveness. You might go, I don't have mountain-sized faith today. Do you have a mustard seed? Start there and then do it again and then do it again and then do it again and then do it again. This is the way of our Lord. This is the posture of his people, a merciful bunch who call sin, sin, who seek justice for the oppressed and the tormented and the abused for sure, and who live lives of incredible mercy and patience and even forgiveness. Oh, Lord, increase our faith. (laughs) Help us to be the community of forgiven forgivers that you have called us to be. Lord, I confess (laughs) that I have no ability to do this on my own. None. Even as I have prepped this week, Lord, there have been wounds that have been raised afresh that have been inflicted upon me that I don't feel like letting go. I feel a strange sense of comfort in the one upmanship I hold over those who wounded me. Oh, Lord, but help me to release them. Lord, as I prepped this message, I thought of the many in this congregation I know who have been grievously sinned against. And I thought, Lord, what what is there for them today? Lord, increase their faith. (laughs) Increase their faith. Lord, I pray that you would bring to mind in this room somebody that each of us needs to forgive And that that forgiveness either needs to lead to restoration or it needs to lead to release, but help us to do it today. Help us to start that journey today and then to do it again tomorrow and then to do it again the next day. Lord, for those in this room who don't know and those listening on the stream who don't know the weight of their own sin, convict them under the power of the Holy Spirit and then remind them of mercy. Let them feel that collision of the cross. His death was necessary. His death was necessary because of the weight of the debt that you owe. Lord, let us feel that. But his death was ordained by you, Father, because you love us and you have such mercy for us. Help us to feel the release of that. We have been forgiven much, so much. Help us to know that and help us to turn and forgive others by the Spirit's help. In Jesus' name.